This episode is brought to you by RCAT. Visiting Chicago for Green Build in November? Check out RCAT at booth 529. This year's theme for the Green Build Convention is Human by Nature, focusing on sustainable buildings and practices that are accessible to everyone. Did you know you can use RCAT to find lead data on building products? RCAT's powerful search engine can help you find the product information you need that meets your environmental standards. Best of all, it's free. Check out RCAT.com, that's A-R-C-A-T.com today, and visit them at GreenBuild, November 14th and 15th at booth 529, where you can find more information. Thanks, RCAT, for sponsoring this episode of ArcaSpeak. Welcome to ArcaSpeak, the podcast that talks about what it's like to work in the profession of architecture. Welcome to episode 155 of the ArcaSpeak podcast. I'm Evan Troxell. And I'm Cormac Phelan. And Neil's not with us this time, but we, we recently had the opportunity to join some very special guests on this episode in their studio in New York City, and that would be Shop Architects. And we had John Sarone, who is their virtual design and construction leader there in their firm to be on the show. And it was a fantastic conversation. So we recorded that separately. We're recording this intro now just so that get everybody into the episode here. And it was a fantastic conversation. What did you think, Cormac? It totally was. And and I've kind of gone back to that conversation multiple times with, you know, different architects, with with um our lead designer in the office, just kind of as a you know, interesting philosophy shift um with the way that like they do it and the way that we've been wanting to do things. Yeah. And I even talked with a lot of construction like the construction manager on one of my projects. Cause in the episode, you know, we were we talked a lot about kind of their delivery method and this digital delivery method, the full integration between the model and, you know, construction practices and things like that. And as excited as I get just by listening to the things that we can be doing now and the things that hopefully we will all be doing in the future, you know, I, I always worry that, it's the adoption of these new technologies or these new delivery um, methods or this new construction method. I, I always worry about, you know, how are the con- the contractors going to adopt this or how, how are they going to receive it? And almost everybody that I've talked to is so very excited about the potential of getting away from the paper um, delivery method of drawings and stuff and being able to have everybody fully integrated into the model. And we, we sort of talked about it and, um, you know, just thinking about like what I've been doing, I'm, you know, my more recent project at Duke and how we worked with the contractors. We gave all of our, um, we, we had the design assist team members, you know, which were steel and, uh, curtain wall manufacturers and, um, our precast all had the model all basically developed, designed and developed their shop drawings around our model. So it was like fully integrated. Mm-hmm. And it was in, in that process really excites me because we're getting to a level of control and a level of detailing and, and more so into that control right. that 
really excites the quality control aspect of the project. Because a lot of times, sometimes people don't really understand a detail or something, and they just kind of wing it and do what they feel like it. And then you walk out there and they're like, oh, man. Yeah. This is not what I had in mind. Right. And they're like, well, you know, we're kind of moved on past it. So this is something that, you know, unless you tell us to rip it out and it's going to cost us, you know, a couple of months to, you know, change and do it a different way that we really don't seem to understand. Um, this is what you got to live with, you know, and, and we all kind of run into things like that a lot. Which is where they're really trying to change the way that they're working, right? Because they're owning exactly these kinds of details Yes. At the very mechanical level of figuring it all out, making sure it performs correctly, and then making all those parts that are then direct to fabrication because it, the, the digital process is allowing for that. Yeah. And, and, what, and what's great about it is what they're doing with that process is that they're, they're not doing it in a bubble. They're not doing it in a void. They're, they're fully integrated with the contractors, with the fabricator, with hell, with um, you know, the distributors and stuff. I mean, they're working with so many different people. To make sure that what they see, they want the project to be, actually turns out that way. Well, and and I think what's interesting is that they have come up with a way to make sure that they've got skin in the game, which is financially tying themselves to the project performance, so that they they basically handcuff themselves to the project at an in an ownership kind of a way, so that they make sure that it happens. Yeah. Well, think about this. I mean. Doing it that way and having, you know, I mean, we all talk about, we really want to take ownership of this project. And that's more, you know, we want, you know, the senior staff, you know, junior staff, everybody to kind of like get excited about the project and stuff. But a lot of times we always kind of default back to, well, you know, if we didn't quite work this detail out, well, they'll figure it out in the field. And this type of ownership is no, no, there is no working it out in the field. It is, we will work it out now because we want to make sure that in the field, it's a smooth, flawless kind of delivery. They can get everything prefabricated, come out there and basically assemble it as everybody kind of envisioned it and not kind of just leave it to chance. And if something goes wrong, they're an active partner in solving the issue, not exactly. leaving it up exactly. to, to just some other entity to do that cool well anyway there's so much more in the episode and i think we should we should probably jump right into it what do you think absolutely hey let's let's give it a listen john sarone from shop architects welcome to the show could you give everybody kind of a a quick little rundown of of who you are and what your firm is all about sure sure uh thank you for having me and thank you for having you know shop represented here on your platform um yeah my name is john sarone i'm an associate principal here at SHOP. Uh, I'm the director of virtual design and construction, or VDC, as it's somewhat obnoxiously referred to now. We'll get <laughs> more into that in a, in a bit, the, the acronyms, the BIM, the VDC, all the yeah. kind of, yeah, the sort of QC three-letter terms in, in this industry. But um, basically, you know, a lot of my focus at, at this office has been towards digital delivery. If you were to you know, the, the sort of high level overview. Um, and in a way that's that's a lot pertain to, you know, how do we use 3D models or the environment of three-dimensional um, platforms to design and deliver those designs, meaning how do you make them? 
So, um, you know, a lot of my focus, you know, specific work, uh, you know, the the fabrication deliverables for Barclays Center is, is probably, you know, one of the most prominent physical things that people have visited. Um, you know, Nassau Coliseum uh, renovation, the exterior, we're doing a project in Botswana, Africa, uh, that involves a lot of sort of intense digital modeling for fabrication. Um, but the, you know, really the components of our, of our design of which every project has, you know, has some feature often it's the, it's the exterior, the facade. Um, but you know, the, the projects where there, there's a, a, a relative amount of complexity or, or intrigue, aesthetic intrigue, but then all of that of course is closely associated with, materiality and how it's made and you know whether it's the machines or people processing that information but all of that you know how do we how do we most you know directly communicate design to the people or machines making it and get it up on our buildings uh, that's been a lot of what my focus has been um, and that leads to all kinds of you know Sort of strange and interesting tangents, of course, into you know VR and AR, um, into digitizing, you know, laser scanning and photogrammetry. It leads into a lot of the sort of fun, weird tech avenues. Right. Um, but all of that is really in service to you know what we think is you know del- the delivery of great design into you know the, to the physical world and creating great experiences for people. So if we just kind of go back, if we dial back the the timeline yeah shop was started with this kind of mentality right yes and so that to me is kind of like it's one of the driving you know the mantra behind why you do what you do and it seems incredibly clear and so that because it seems to go through all the projects i mean cormac when we went when when we walked into the lobby right it was it was yeah. th- there were lots of models it was an architecture office no doubt and you guys have the model airplanes on the wall. Could you kind of talk about just how that whole thing started? Because I think one of the things that impressed me about shop in particular mm-hmm. was was just the idea of performative based design. Yep. And it and it it seems to kind of bleed through everywhere in in your environment. Yeah, it definitely does. Uh, you know, it, what I mean, as you identify correctly, it is in the DNA of the firm. Um, I think you know a good preface to this is that depending who you talk to in this office, you're going to get a different angle of a project or a sort of story or narrative. That's, you know, I think that's that's one of the, the sort of richness of this office is th- that it is a place where a lot of different interests, you know, whether it's it's materiality, whether it's environmental performance, whether it's, you know, digital modeling and, and, and directive fabrication techniques, you're, you're going to get a different um, area of focus. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and meaning a different sort of story of the project of what is what's valuable about what's valuable about this project um, in the eye of the presenter, and I think that's that's a really important part of the office. We're not all here, you know, coding parametric design. Um, my angle is always the digital process, so it's it's is a tech heavy mm-hmm. um, approach, which is what you know the sort of bias of what you'll probably hear in this conversation today um but it's there are people that are equally amount focused on you know the touch and feel of material and and color contrast and this sort of experiential um uh, experiential design and all of that 
you know, it, it's in shop is a synthesis of that, of, you know, what something looks like, feels like the experience can't be separated from how um, it's done. You know, what is the material? What are the properties? What is the tooling required to do it? Um, so it is this sort of equal part artistic and, and technical approach. And I think it's just important to preface it with that because, again, it not not everyone is doing the same thing or everything here. It's a really good blend and synthesis of different backgrounds and interests um, coming together to deliver, you know, the one thing we all do care about is, is again, delivering great um, product, a great built environment for people. Um, so, you know, to that point, the technical side of it, I think, we, which we get into, you know, you identify the planes um, and sort of the DNA of the office. Um, it is it is relatively straightforward and it is potent. Um, we think the narrative, you know, it, it came from, you know, the partners all came from different backgrounds. I think they all, they were not architectural undergraduate students. They came from history, uh, you know, art history, finance, uh, structural engineering. They came from different, um, you know, walks of life. And as they say, their midlife crisis decided to, you know, apply their focus into architecture. So they, they all went to architectural school um, later, you know, later in their educational careers. And, um, you know, it was a time where, you know, silicon graphics and, and 3D modeling was, was sort of hitting the design floor. Yeah. Um, I went, you know, I went to undergraduate in, in Miami of Ohio where, you know, Form Z was the, was the, 3D du jour. I think it still might be. Yes. Um, and then <laughs> I'm, I'm the same vintage. So, <laughs> yeah. I've been, hey, I love Forms. It's, it's like a very clear. Um, yeah, I mean, we get into it. that stuff, but as a 3D modeling tool, like it's very explicit about like, these are points, these are lines, right. these are faces. Right. Um, but, you know, so I, I think I take that for granted in the sense that even in undergrad, that was kind of a new approach right. the idea of 3d modeling i think this is uh and then of course you know graduate school later at in um at columbia it's it's a very 3d heavy um approach but you know i think when when the partners were in grad school it's, it's sort of hitting the design studio and i think you get a lot of blob you get a lot of formal you know we can make shapes we hadn't been able to make before right right um and, and, you know, I think a lot of emphasis was put on render and image and, yeah. and uh, yeah. you know, experimentation in, in just digital form. And the background, I think the interest of, you know, to their credit, of the, the partners, um, you know, they were, they come, you know, there's a very aerospace focus, you know, uh, there's this kind of infatuation with planes and, and, you know, marine and automotive uh, industries, and you know, you know the 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 triple seven documentary of of how you know this Boeing is is putting you know the advanced technology, the first fully three D digital CAD of a of a plane. You know, that's coming out at the same time. So while architectural school of thought, a lot of it was kind of graphic heavy. Um, meanwhile, in other industries, there's there's these huge case studies of, you know, what you're able to do, digital mock-ups and how the 3D model is this platform that can 
you know, deliver high-end engineering and fabrication. So the partners, I think, were focused. They their ear was towards the kind of the Nova special, the the triple seven, mm-hmm. and this technology hitting on the design floor is like, okay, we've got these three D modeling platforms. We can use this to make stuff. Um, and I think that was a very clear uh, idea. And you know, it, it it comes in the first projects where you're, you know, it's sort of raw digital exercise, but it was always about extracting, not just making a form in 3D, but making that physically. And how do you use the computer to translate the instructions to make it? So I think they felt that, you know, looking at these other industries, aerospace, automotive, uh, you know, oh, architecture is heading down the same path. And when we graduate here, we're going to enter this industry that's putting buildings together the way Boeing puts planes together. And obviously there's a a rude awakening (laughs) When right. you know, yeah. <laughs> hit the professional, um, it, it hit the landscape. And it's the reality is a lot of this industry we're, is still working uh, the behind. same way for, for thousands of years. It, yeah. Uh, so that, you know, that that idea that, wait, other industries are using this technology to have it really high end control of both the engineering, the simulation and the, and the making uh, the fabrication of their parts and components. Uh, can't we manufacture architecture? Can't we deliver design the same way? That is the absolute core of the DNA, and it is it is simple. It's profound um, in the sense that you know I I think it, it's so it resonates so well with I think students and professionals um, that it had I think shop had a lot of acclaim. You know, the proportion of a claim to actual built work at the time was, you know, there was a lot of the story. And because it's so true to the DNA, as we worked on and developed bigger and larger scopes and projects, uh, the way we deliver them has stayed true to that initial DNA. And it's, it's in a way, it kind of exponentially charges itself. We, the tools get better, we get better at using them. Um, we are certainly, we'll get into the softwares we use, but, you know, we're well outside of the realm of traditional AEC tools and it just, it's scaled, it's scaled in a way that we're able to actually deliver really large scopes in the way that we had always wanted to. Um, it's always a continuous evolution and, and education, obviously, but, uh, you know, that's, that's certainly the compelling or a compelling story of shop, mm-hmm. uh, is of the DNA. It's certainly why I'm here. Um, it's, it's my specific area of interest. I think some things that, that kind of stand out to me is number one, there's like a primary drive to make physical things, right? Yes. So it's not just documenting a design. It's really about making the thing. Yes. Um, the second thing is let's get as much information into that model so that the thing can be made exactly how we want it to be made which requires a high level of ownership over the process. And I think that's something that is a little unique for your guys's operation <laughs> because it it seems to me the trend over decades of architecture is okay, first of all let's just figure out new ways to do what, the same thing we've always done, which is draw lines right. on paper. <laughs> but but also shed risk, right? Shed like yep. give it away, get rid of it. And and I think one of the things that I keep seeing 
every time I, I think about shop or, or what I experienced walking through the office and, and Cormac jump in here. I mean, I, I felt like the ownership is high because you mm -hmm. guys are willing to take on figuring out how this stuff's going to happen. And I think that, like I said, I think that's a little bit unique. Yeah. I mean, we certainly are, we feel that way. Um, it, it's, you know, we think it's, it's a necessity. Um, we want to, you know, no, no one entity can, can't transform an industry, but you can certainly help. You can be part of a movement um, that, that, you know, hopes to kind of evolve uh, practice and how, you know, as designers, your sort of authorship and ownership of, of scope uh, and how you collaborate, you know, really intimately co collaborate with experts. So, you know, we're, we're not, we're not fabricators. We're not, um, we don't certainly don't pretend to, to know, you know, all the ins and outs of, of factories and we don't tell, you know, our, our, you know, subs on a project how to do their job, but we, we, we have a digital platform that just really enables um, deep collaboration. So we're good at digitizing, automating um, geometry. And we have, obviously we, we drive the design intent. So when we work with experts, you know, whether it's enclosures or, or wood, wood systems or, you know, the people making the, you know, at the end of the day, making the, the pieces and parts. Um, and we do, we do think of our projects, maybe that's unique. Um, you know, this is a very simple statement, but somehow it's, it's, it seems to be kind of, uh, have it, have a deeper meaning. We do think of our, our buildings as pieces and parts and assemblies. Um, that's, that's kind of an important distinct, distinction um it's not just you know sort of large masses and and geometries kind of colliding in in some unknown resolution that that you you sort of wait till uh shop drawings to figure out how things go together we do we do like to think about resolutions of detail um that that support design intent and then when we're you know, when we collaborate with the people that are actually engineering and sizing, you know, thicknesses of plates or mechanical connections, we, we come from, we already have a, a backdrop or a, a infrastructure or environment, a digital environment that allows us to explain what we want, what we're looking to achieve, and then also, um, you know, dial in or represent the the fabricators constraints and logics. Um, so we're, we're basically able to sort of simulate those systems and, and quickly, you know, uh, automate them see what they'll look like across the scope of the project. But it, it's really a way to um, sort of internalize the constraints um, from, from many different, whether it's engineering or, or the actual material fabrication standpoint or logistics to shipping we're able to take all the constraints and kind of in, uh, incorporate that into our design inputs in a way. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's not, we do, there are certainly areas where we've taken on more risk <laughs> where we actually provide cut files and things like that. But at the core of it, it's really operating um, an environment of this sort of digital platform for collaboration. So we're, you know, we, we don't, do we think, as these platforms evolve, that architects will be making cut files uh, in the future. Is that the future of design delivery? Not necessarily. Um, we've done that as a sort of stopgap 
to when someone said, you know, this is too complex, or can't we just rationalize these, you know, there's 12,000 panels, can't we just rationalize them into right. eight different sizes? Right. You know, that we, we have um, engaged in levels of, of modeling and fabrication to, to get a, to achieve a design that we, you know, we know is achievable. But the future of this as this evolves and more contractors and, and fabricators um, come into these 3D platforms and the, you know, the machines direct to manufacturing becomes more commonplace. We, we see our design model as a place, um, as sort of a replacement to a lot of the traditional processes. Why, why do we do a design model, give that to someone else, they model their system, send it back to us in drawings to review uh, and try to catch all the, right. you know, the three dimension, you know, as things turn the corners and try to trace the details around Imagine in 3D, um, where we end up modeling it ourselves, like this whole modeling to translation to 2D to, for distribution and then people remodel that to what they think. It's kind of this strange game of telephone and it's just, it's not efficient. Mm-hmm. And as people become more comfortable in, in using the 3D environment to, to make, um, we think we'll be trading models back and forth. You know, we'll see people's yeah. models evolve within our platform. Um, it's just this kind of real-time collaboration. So that's the excitement. So, so let me ask you this, because now you're, you just stepped into, this is a soapbox that I've been pulling out multiple times to basically beg and plead people. It's like, look, you know, it, when we're designing for a 2D output, because, you know, in a, in a 3D world, you know, of course we're going to have change orders. Of course we're going to have all of these issues and things like that. And where I was going with that is I was curious about what your, you know, experience with your contractors and, and fabricators and stuff have been um, with the dialogue back and forth and just, you know, staying, you know, purely 3D rather than, you know, waiting for that, that cyclical, you know, I'll do it in 3D, then 2D, then 3D, then, you know, it comes back to us in 2D kind of thing i mean how how have they been is there like a sense of relief <laughs> or is it or is there pushback uh, I, I mean i think it depends on how it's set up and how you're kind of entering the project you know i i started by you know vdc is is this sort of obnoxious term that's come out um as a as a focused version of bim so like building information modeling I, it, it meant something. I think when when people sort of you know you've got a you've got a three dimensional representation. It has information attached to it, um, and that is your that is your platform. That's like that's the project, and everything is represented. You know, two D is an extraction, but it uh, of of a three D truth. Um, and from BIM, you know, I think we've entered this. BIM is a requirement. I think people it's become super generic and super. you know every contractor every design it's a oh yeah we, we're full bim we all bim yeah, um, yeah to yeah. the point where i, I don't even think i uh, lectures and, and in the office we don't even say bim it's kind of like unless we're sort of joking mm-hmm. um because it, it it's so it, it's it's so generic to a point where like i mean there is there's validity in the idea of course um but you know, digital models and, and how they're used, we, we we like to be really specific internally. Like what is a what is a point cloud um, 
you know, if you do a LIDAR scan, how does that get into meaningful right. 3D geometry that we can measure off of or coordinate a fabrication model? You know, how you're using the model and how you're interfacing with a 3D environment is really important to be specific. And then when people are just, we're BIM everything, you find that it's not, uh, I think if you were to go into, um, a lot of people are modeling, as you just said, are modeling um, for 2D deliverables, which means a lot of things are are skipped, faked, are or 3D is comes afterwards as a deliverable because right. someone wants BIM and no one, you know, it's not specific why they it's want just a checklist. It's part of yeah, the checklist. Check yeah. item. And then, you know, unfortunately, you know, a lot of the, I think the industry and the sort of, as you said, that the wanting to shed liability has, has backed a lot of this into the corner. I think specifically in, in, you know, the States um, where people are even reluctant to share 3d CAD because yeah. If we had, you know, we didn't resolve this corner, someone's going to go and use that as a, <laughs> mm-hmm. they're going to build off that where really the 2D yeah. is what the actual deliverable is. So what's in our PDF is what you should go by. And, you know, there, there's a lot of this kind of confusion. So you, but still don't measure off that, right? Like there's all the, there's exactly. still all the disclaimers. <laughs> exactly. So, 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 I mean, to your point, we, we've, you know, since, you know, the, the kind of Barclays to, to Nassau, um, project the, the workflow there was was really reassuring because i think we pioneered a lot of you know and, and it's interesting the lineage of the firm too because you start with the idea that a computer can you can take you can make something in the computer and you can use that model to make the thing so you know ps1 which is this initial pavilion you, you look at this evolution of projects so the early projects still all had the dna of you know, can we create one-to-one jigs? You've got like PS1 and Camera Obscura, and uh, you you couldn't have done the Porterhouse project without proving a sort of a, a way of working um, on those initial projects. That that sort right. of DNA. You're always building on on that to to get exactly. to where you are. So yeah, it's not like you guys walked into this with all the knowledge. It's been a build up over time. Exactly, and and then you know you can't do. Barclays had you not done Porterhouse and Barclays is kind of, you know, the idea that you're going to do uh, the cut files for, you know, a rain screen system, which was the Porterhouse and actually as a designer control that deliverable, mm-hmm. you know, that is somewhat unheard of at that time. And now, of course, I mean, there's, there's, I think firms that, that look to do that at that small scale. But then when you look at Barclays, it's just an exponential increase of complexity and, and resolution. Um, but it's done in a way. It's the exact same mentality that we're gonna we're gonna digitally mock up the entire project and use that for the deliverable. And of course, the tools you know scale at that point where you know you go from SolidWorks, uh, you know Rhino SolidWorks, um, up to kind of Katia full blown you know fabrication models at Barclays. But we proved that was one where we formed this relationship. You know, Forest City is the client. Hunt Construction is the builder. Uh, it was a design build, um, and we're working, you know, directly with a facade fabricator. And you you build this relationship where, um, you know, the project is is so complex. The timeline is is quite tight. Uh, the stakes are very high, and there just there's this realization that the model, you know, we're coordinating primarily through 3D 
you know, fabrication models. And um, we, you form this relationship where reviews and, and you know, des, uh, design reviews and, and um, sort of logistics studies are all done around these models and, and stuff fits. You know, the, the work instructions out in the field are, are screenshots of a model or in some cases, you know, us with an iPad or a, a laptop, you know, spinning the model around to say, hey, uh, we've overlaid we've overlaid the laser scan of this of this uh, of the structure here. The, the facade units are coming in from the from fabrication from another place. But the laser scan shows that this plate is was installed correct, incorrectly or is damaged. So you're going to have to notch this out before this, before you install this facade unit. And we're doing this all through like model. There's no written directive. There's no uh, sort of PDF documentation. And the initial feeling or response to that from the contractor, you know, from the foreman on site is like, you're out of your fucking minds. Um, like this is this is crazy. You're telling me to go through and cut the steel or move this plate or do this from you know this sort of three-dimensional you're video. like yeah i'm trying to help you <laughs> yeah no and, and what's funny is you know they're, they're the first you know as the units come in and they start installing this and they they realize like oh like that that yeah, right fit. that wouldn't have fit yeah and, you know like the i remember like the first unit of like the canopy of barclays for example it's this sort of alien object that shows up there's five books that are in like weird locations there's no drawing to show like, where it goes and it's just with the model you say you know what this unit goes up there and they're like well what are you talking about like, well there's five hooks and then if you look up there there's there's five pins that are all like specifically located it's kind of this bespoke system and uh they're like well so we're just supposed to lift it and it'll fit in you're like yeah that's the, <laughs> that's the that's the idea so they you know they they um I think there's the initial reaction is to be obviously skepticism. You know, like, oh, this is crazy, but whatever, let's let's give it a go. And they lift it up and it like fits perfectly into place. And they realize, you know, as you move through, had had they not, you know, notched this plate or adjusted this pin, that the stuff wouldn't have fit. But uh, it starts everything starts fitting and locking into place. And to a point where the skepticism turned into like, this, it was actually fun. Like we're, you know, we go out, go out on site and the, you know, the foreman is like, all right, well, you know, what do you got for us today? Like, right, what's right. The, what are we doing? And they go from installing, you know, one or two units a day very quickly and installing 10 to 20. Um, it just, it becomes this you, kind you, of game. You and, and become, it, yeah. Yeah, exactly. They become sort of involved and you show them a, you know, you can review digitally an area, you know, this, something needs to be resolved. And they, they kind of feel ownership and stake in this now, like, oh, we could, we could, move this plate, we could switch this bolt. Uh, we need, you know, on our end, we need to get approval from engineering for that to happen. It's it's the digital model. You sort of make the adjustments in the model, send screenshots, the engineer runs calcs, sends it back. And it's just this incredibly efficient mode of communication that everyone is involved and has their, their head around. So it you, sounds you, to me, though, like you guys, yeah. there there's this huge process every time you work with somebody new that you have yeah. to kind of go through this process Absolutely. with because that distrust or whatever you want to call it has yeah. been built on this history have you guys ever thought about doing like shop class or whatever you'd call, you know what would you call it but but something 
preemptive to the to the project starting construction to talk about that kind of stuff? Or do you just always do it once it's begun? Yeah, I think we do the orientation. I mean, I don't think that can ever prepare people really for it. I think there's always going to be a level of skepticism. It's not real. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's just, you know, like this is, yeah, it's not real. It's, this is not how things are done. And I think when you do it, all of a sudden they realize it's, it's really real. And it's actually in, in many ways, it's, there's so much truth in these models. Yeah. Um, you know, for better or worse, you expose, look, you're going to have an issue. Uh, this, this, this facade unit is going to hit. Uh, a structural bolt like we, we've got to do something about this it's not something they find out once they've lifted the unit in which of course those kinds of change orders are are just a disaster for schedule and when when, when you do these the traditional approach which is all right something didn't fit why uh you st- you go through this exercise you go through drawings you go through design intent models you go through shop drawings you go through all this sort of different modes of communication and that takes a lot of time yeah and meanwhile that time people are doing stuff they're gonna cut things out they're gonna make something fit oh, right man. and <laughs> right. that is to the detriment of the project it's, yeah it's a danger exactly. and it, it can snowball so you, it's it's kind of this when you have this level of of um you know this this model this kind of cad that is a federated uh both sort of design and fabrication model you can get an answer very quickly especially like it if you digitize what's there and you know what's built and is intended to go there, you can make decisions very quickly. And that's often the real value of working like this. Yeah. And, you know, the, the extension after, you know, Barclays, we, you know, the, the gang got together again for uh, NASA. was kind of uh, this process where we've already established, in a way, a shorthand. And it's not sure. to say that, you know, uh, you know, authority having jurisdiction, isn't is is left out their documents are 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 shortcut all the necessary requirements are there of course for permitting and all of that but the internal design team and you know contractor and subcontractor when you all speak the same language and we understand we're going to be trading these you know you'll take our design model you'll build your fabrication model off of that we'll do the shop drawing and i'm using air quotes now right the shop drawing review is us receiving your fabrication model, turning it on and off to the design intent model. That's the review process. Um, you all of a sudden go from, you know, hundreds of pages of, of sort of what we've considered a formality of these shop drawings down to, you know, intent. It, it describes a system uh, for stamping, but the, but the true review is of the three-dimensional geometry. And it's, you know, it's, it, 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 it is, um, you can replicate it. And yeah. you know, I think in that experience, we're working with Hunt Construction on, on when we did that with Nassau, they brought in Crown Corps, which was a, a subcontractor for the facade that very much spoke the same language. And their, their subs, you know, the people doing the fins, the people doing the space frame, everyone spoke that same language. And it's just what you're, the efficiency you're able to achieve when that is the sort of common language is incredible. And we, we do see the industry inevitably moving that way. Um, right. It's it's this process when when there's a new, uh, you know, a new project and a new team involved. We're very on purpose. We we try to be very open source with what we're doing and how we're doing it. We like, you know, we don't have secret secret modeling techniques that we won't share with a fabricator. Um, if they want to 
sort of see the scripts or sort of see how uh, the, the sausage is made or you want to, I mean, a lot of it's like, sometimes it's TMI. Like there's, there's just like, okay, we, we're not there yet. Right. Um, it's overwhelming. Yeah. It's overwhelming, but you have to show how, how their rules are being embedded into your automated yeah. models. You, you have to show the logic behind the system. Exactly. So that, so that, that, that trust is. Yeah. Exactly. It validates the process and the trust is there. And that is something we're very um, open to share always um, because that's not, that's not specific IP. It's, it's just, it's a way that we, we hope this, that, you know, there's a continual evol- evolution towards working this way. I have a question for you that I want to kind of tee up real quick. Cause we talked about this on, on one of our previous episodes as well, just talking yep. about the model centric workflow and how it f- enforces or, or requires honesty in modeling. Mm. Yep. Because you garbage in, garbage out, right? Garbage in, garbage out, or or you're back to the old days of having to coordinate all the different drawings if you're faking stuff on one because it's you're faking it in 2D and then all of a sudden something changes and you forget to go to the other views and and update it because of that dummy crap that people put into models. So I think that everything that you just said kind of speaks to validating the, the reason behind enforcing that honesty and i i wonder if that's a conversation that you guys have or if it's just inherent in the way that you work but then also what what do you think my question is what do you think is keeping architecture as a profession back from jumping more headfirst into adopting the model-centric workflow like what are the things out there that are because i don't think it's it's necessarily the software i don't think it's the software vendors um i mean we're always maybe asking for more in that realm but in the work that Cormac and I do, a lot of times it's the it's the agency review, but right. but besides those, like what are the things holding us back? Yeah, I mean, like, the the deliverables are, you know, that's that's still that's still it. You're you're right now responsible for construction documents and specifications. I mean, there's the deliverable now is a, is two dimensional. That's that's industry standard. That's what contracts are. Focused around That's what the AIA uh, believes in, right? Yeah, and and yeah. and then the other side is liability. I mean, I think people don't want to overshare. If that's if that's the deliverable and that's the accepted deliverable, um, you know, giving a model that may or may not sort of completely sync with that two D deliverable. You know, I think people like the gray area. I mean, yeah. not that. They like it. It's a place to hide, right? (laughs) You hide. Drawings are, you can hide in a 2D. Right. So I think a lot of it, in terms of architecture offices, I mean, we certainly are, have to address this. Like there's a certain part of the way we model. It is a very 3D heavy firm and not in a, not in a kind of novelty way or or kind of a gimmick. We, we design in 3D where, you know, design happens in Rhino. Um, You know, we use, we, Rhino and I, Rhino Grasshopper. Like we are, right. I say that synonymously because I think we do have a very high level proficiency in, in Grasshopper and, and sort of parametric uh, stuff. But you know, design happens in Rhino Grasshopper. It moves into Revit for documentation, and or and then often it gets paralleled in Katia for potentially some advanced systems um, and modeling. But you know, we deal with it. Because it's a it's a resource issue. Um, if you're if you still are responsible for the, you know the, the 300 page construction document set and hundreds and thousands of drawings of details, 
and the model, um, you know, something sort of something has to give. Yeah, I was going to ask you guys actually about that because you do you are so willing to take on in order to get the thing built that you want built. You're so willing to take on these different responsibilities. To what cost it, does that affect yep. shop? Uh, yeah, I mean that that is a it's a it's a thing here for sure. Um, <laughs> you know, I think the projects where we've done it, we you know, we, it certainly wasn't for um, you know, it wasn't for profit. It was for Advantage. you know the, the quality control. A, yeah, quality um, getting you know the design we wanted it has not been a profit driven uh, exercise. But that said, we think there are versions of this model where there'll be innovation in terms of how you write the contract and how can we deliver a design model potentially that has useful, like that we're able to deliver useful CAD. I mean, I bring it up the way I say it because it's, it's on everybody's mind, right? Uh, yep. It's going to take so much of our time to develop the things to this level of detail or to this understanding. Mm-hmm. Maybe we need to get educated on how to do this stuff. That takes time. We need to talk to the fabricators. We need to, we need yep. to, become educated on how they do what they do, what their machine limitations are, what the transport limitations are, when typically we've offloaded all that kind of stuff. So there's definitely a cost, but yep. you guys seem to be working back toward the master builder yep. kind of idea. And and so, like like you said, you're not doing it for profit, but you're doing it because you believe in something. And that is more important than the profit. Yeah, I mean, Not always, maybe, but a lot of times. No, I mean, we are, you know, we, we have... We are a, to make a for-profit enterprise. Yeah, I mean, right. we're, we're, you know, in this kind of both and that we always start our lectures with, we're both in this sort of R&D and academic thinking, but we are, but we're, we're a production firm. We, you know, we have to make the buildings uh, that we design. That's, both are valuable. And to do that, yeah, I think you have to be, we have to be realistic about efforts. What's, what's interesting is you have to be realistic or keep an eye on the global sort of landscape of this industry. So it it's interesting because it, when you work this way, there are incredible efficiencies to be had in terms of like time and effort. Uh, you're able to do large amounts of work with small concentrated teams. Um, so there is a way that this can be negotiated that it, I think it's, it is very profitable uh, for, for everyone. There's kind of this win-win-win situation where, you know, the building, if it's done at this, uh, if, if you can design and deliver an environment that's this efficient, the building will be cheaper um, because there's less kind of gray area change orders. The contractors will be more efficient in terms of time and designers will potentially make a little bit more because they're, there's, they're in control of deliverables Um you know, if you invest a little bit more upfront to make sure that there's meaningful uh, CAD, there's meaningful documentation that you hand the baton to the the contractors, manufacturers, that whole timeline compresses, uh, and there's a lot of efficiency to be had there. The to overcome that, I mean, there's it, it's and it's a beast to overcome. I mean, there's so much contractual language and and um, kind of historic, this is the way things are done. There's a lot of uh, inertia or, the, or a lot of sort of like mass momentum uh, yeah. to move. So it, you can do it through case studies. You know, I mean, the, the, certain events we had 
or certain experiences we had on these projects, you know, Barclays and, and others, for example, where it's just this extreme level of this was the design, this is the representation of that design. The the steel detailer takes that that CAD, uh, uses it as the backdrop to their their fabrication models. Um, it's so efficient that we know, like you can't unknow that. Yeah. So we know it exists. It, it it can work, and then you know the real innovation will come from um, you know uh, from from um, client uh, design builder contracts uh, that allow some of these efficiencies to work. Because we said you know it it's it's not efficient if you have to do all of it. If you still need all the the drawings and documentation and the modeling, um, I think it's a bit of a misconception that modeling is harder than drawing um it's a reappropriation of effort right but right now if you still need all of the backgrounds and the drawings um you don't have time to re you can't you're spread thin yeah the balance is a is a real thing yeah yeah the balance is wrong so that that we hope that there's a shift in that kind of mentality we were talking about probably one of the bigger things because i see you know, just in, in my own practice, you know, I've, I've seen not my own practice, but you know, what I'm doing with the firm I'm in, um, I see that, you know, a lot of the contractors, you know, precast manufacturers, whatever are actually, you know, working as design assist with the models. So you're the steel contractors and everything else. They're all working with your models and they're in there. And so there's a good dialogue coming up, you know, electrical, you know, engineers, the subs, everybody, they're working with the models, but we think the bigger hangup is really, you know, with the AHJs because they don't, they're not really equipped to understand what we're doing with the model. Um, you know, and, and so we were saying, you know, I, I jokingly said, well, you know, we're going to have to wait for everybody to kind of die off and then have a new breed of AHJs come in who are tech savvy that understand, you know, the softwares that we're building in, um, designing and building in to basically move that forward. So we're not just doing the doubled effort. Yep. And I mean, this is exciting because this is where something like, you know, virtual reality and augmented reality, you know, beyond the novelty of it, I, Right. We've gotten we've be, we've been very deeply involved in it for several years now, um, and less about the you know I think the obvious use of VR is like hey uh, clients here is the finished space what do you think or hey client here's the finished space you can you know sell condos uh, you know this is what it'll look like yeah. <laughs> um, you can you know it's it's a marketing tool and it of course is good for that but I think our our interest in VR has been much more like the implications of it on our industry. Mm-hmm. That's exciting to us. So we use it in very early stages of design. And of course, we do use it for, you know, here's the final materiality or, you know, this is, you, you get that kind of immersive rendering, but we use it. The, the interesting parts are way before that yeah. in, in concept, Agreed. Agreed. even, you know, yeah, concept through schematic. I mean, we review things yeah. genuinely yeah. review right. in, in VR it's and the, the new way to, to redline which, set, which, right? Yeah, which which makes perfect sense. You're building, exactly. you know, the ultimate goal of this is to have a 3D building that is occupiable for people that to walk it. through. So why not do why not do this throughout the entire process? Yeah. So the yeah. more the more you'd have to do stuff 
for VR. Uh, the, we, we like it because in a way it's, it's, it's this, you know, it, it's this, uh, I, I don't mean this in a, like a malicious, it, it sort of undermines the 2D. Um, you <laughs> need to review it. It's in 3D. It's conducive to this 3D environment. Absolutely. Like this, this is the way that the AHJs can, um, you know, the authorities can review this way. Like it, it is, in a, in a lot of ways, it is actually, um, it, it breaks down barriers of CAD navigation because even the most, like the simple, all you have to do is right click and move the mouse and it'll spin this model. That is foreign to people. But if right. you yeah. just look, you're in it and just point to stuff and click, It's there's no barrier of entry there. And we can get people that, that are expertise, you, you know, the code officials and fire departments, you can get people engaging the project, which is a 3D thing. Then if you get them used to these environments, then you can start asking the question, do you, do you really need this piece of paper to approve it or, or are we good? You know, like that's the way it, it could eventually happen. Right. I, I mean, you know, as you started talking and you know, we were talking about getting the HGAs to basically do VR, you know, I'm, I'm envisioning because, you know, I'm getting to a stage in schematics of a project I'm working on where we're going to be sitting down with the fire marshal walking through it and everything else. I can imagine taking him through and saying, okay, here's how you enter the building and let him enter the building. Let him walk to, you know, where the fire enunciator panel is. Then let him go, you know, to each floor and understand, you know, where his standpipes are, where, you know, all of these like little minutiae that he needs to worry about actually are and say, okay, yeah, this makes sense. No, I, I think because of this, you know, once he gets a spatial understanding of things, he's like, okay, you now you need this to be here, you know, because it's more adjacent to your stairs or, you know, I'm just throwing stuff out now. But, you know, I mean, at least he's engaging in the ability to understand the building. Yep. And, and even beyond that, you can take, because it's just a 3D environment, you can make any view you want of it, right? So right. Yeah, if you, you, want could, plan, you could easily just plan. put a giant marker everywhere that these things are. It's not, it's not like, the days of here is here's the plan that shows where the standpipes are. This is a, a view specific for an audience yep. that matters to them. And right. we we have the ability to do that, but I think for the most part, yeah. most architects aren't doing that kind of thing. And you know, I think you know to that point, this is all this is a, it's a compelling and we we believe it, it's inevitable in terms of the just sort of design and review process, the permitting. You know, that one of the things that's sort of held some of this back is. We still need the drawings to make it. So AR, you know, like a contractor isn't going to pop into VR to figure out, you know, where they should lay out the, the studs. <laughs> um, that That's sort of a little unrealistic. I mean, they can walk through, you can coordinate logistics in that sort of immersive environment. But AR, which is at a very sort of nation state, we understand that. But there, the implications of augmented reality where on in the physical world, the overlay sort of holographic instruction manual is there. Um, you know, we've, we've been experimenting with, we're, we're using HoloLens now, but this, you know, there's, there's technologies coming out um, where like that, once that becomes sort of understood or, or meaningfully applied to sites, that is a direct, that's a direct case for three-dimensional deliverables. Because whether the architect is, is, you know, whether it's coming from the design model, probably not, but it will compel uh, contractors to create meaningful 3D CAD that you can build from. 
Um, because to overlay that in reality, you know, as, as a augmented instruction manual, uh, that level of coordination is, is required. And that can be incredibly efficient. I don't think anyone will care about a, a two-dimensional representation if you're able to convey that sort of in real time in 3D. Yeah, agreed. I, I, one of the things that that has come up that I've seen is, you know, because two, on 2D drawings, they're sealed, right? There's a stamp in the corner yeah. Yeah. that says, we take liability for what's on this page. In a 3D environment, yeah. that's that's a little different, right? Because that, that isn't really a thing. But um, I'm just wondering, you know, maybe maybe this is where the, the idea of blockchain comes in, where you've got a way, a ledger system that is yep. built in so that the different entities who touch the the, yep. the model have accountability to it, right? Absolutely. The technologies are out there to do this kind of yep. stuff, but and and they're they're not necessarily happening in the architectural realm, but they are happening where it could be applied to it. One hundred percent. I mean, that's you know obviously the challenges that we sort of face in terms of you know ownership and who who's uh, you know the kind of collaborative IP or life cycle of a project. Other industries have been dealing with this yeah. in 3D CAD for a long time. I mean, this is where, you know, when there, there are ways, um, and it, in certain ways, it's, it's even more explicit in terms of we, you know, this is the geometry, the sort of design intent that we are responsible for. And it might be surfaces, it might be lines or points that, that this is the intent this is what we care. This is face of glass. This is face of curtain wall, and we we understand the details behind that. But we'll we'll own this surface, and what you build off of this surface as an input is is your model. We see it all in one environment, but very explicitly, who's done what is you know time stamped to the to each move, and the models belong to the trades responsible. So in a, in a certain way, um, it it's even more kind of explicit. There's no kind of opacity to that. It's incredibly transparent. I think a lot of times maybe people worry about that transparency because as we said before, you can hide in a 2D drawing. So there is, there's a lot of maybe money to be had in change orders or, you know, we don't, we'll figure this out when we get to the field. But the idea that if everyone is working in that environment, our inputs are very clear. There's, surfaces, um, there's indicators for, you know, material specifications, um, offsets, things like that. But how someone builds the system uh, would be represented or, or built by the people ultimately responsible for that system. Right. I, I think what's, what's and, and maybe you could just comment, uh, when you are working, this kind of goes back earlier in our conversation where you're working with these different fabricators. I when I, I was teaching an emerging technology class at the in the architecture department at the, our local university here, and one of the guest lectures that I had, she was talking. They're doing direct to fabrication digital yep. modeling using control surfaces, but then backing it all up with the structure and all that kind of stuff. Yep. And they're working with fabricators who love this idea. Right? It's it. You're not pulling teeth to get them to do it. And I think the reason I wanted to bring this up was, I think a lot of times architects compromise before the thing goes out the door we've talked about this on the show previously where we make assumptions based on maybe somebody's previous experience or how we think it might turn out um, and I and what I wanted to maybe get your input on was 
give us an idea of what it's like to work with some of these people who are who are like give me these these yep. juicy ideas to 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 take and and run with versus the the constant pushback that we get kind of in today's construction mentality that we're seeing on job sites and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean I think it's we we have examples. We have one currently which I don't know that I can so what it is specifically but where where you know a fabricators like look why this is incredible. We could, we could, you could give us stuff we could use. Like this could be, and we'll figure out this. You're doing our job for us. What? Yeah, or, or in, <laughs> in conjunction, you know what I mean? Like there's, if we're, I think a lot of times architects overdraw stuff because we, we like the, yes, yes, we do. <laughs> you know, we, we think we know how it's going to go together, but the reality, I mean, there's, there's design intent, which is we do care how thick something is or, or the sort of reveal between one material and another, um, but but the systems behind that, we're often, you know, that's not our area of expertise. It's not our our um, you know that's not our scope. But we we like to we like to draw the stuff, and it's it's all for pricing. So I mean, one of the big challenges which we we hadn't mentioned, you know, this, the design bid build it does pose a challenge because you don't know like the idea of a design assist lends itself very well to this right. way of working because people get their eyes on it. You know the systems, whether you're modeling it for them or they're capable of modeling it, you're, you are working in this kind of federated design environment. It is more challenging, a design assist. Um, this is where parametric modeling, or, you know, it, it helps because it can adapt. Like you could say, all right, this is bitter one's version or bitter two, or ideally here's the surface uh, bitter one, you know, uh, impose your model on this. You're like, use this surface as the input and build what you would do. Bitter two, same thing. And we can comparatively review, contrast the different systems and approaches. And, and you know, bitter one, two, and three wouldn't necessarily see the other's uh, systems in place. But in one model, you could, like, there are, of course, uh, technologies that allow for this kind of like black boxing, like, one person can see this. You can't see the other person's connection detail. Like all of that is has been managed by aerospace for decades. Hmm. So the idea that you can actually create a meaningful review process, a bid process in 3D, um, like that, that's not unreasonable at all. And the fabricators, certain ones, love that idea of here's basic surface areas. Take take this. Do what you need to find quantities, do what you need to sort of descope the project. But if we could review, if they built their systems on it, that would be incredibly efficient. <laughs> like, no, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, because then real time they can start to, you know, say, okay, well, you know, I'm bidding this, you know, electrician comes in, I'm bidding this raceway in here. And I see that we're going to have some conflicts there. So, you know, I mean, they, you know, maybe add a little extra to their bid or something to kind of like work through some, you know, coordination issues or things like that. But I mean, you know, I've, I've, I've been having a lot of experience with this recently because uh, the last um, project that I've been working on, which is under construction, it was a design build. Um, I'm not design build, but it was a design assist project. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we didn't have all of the trades do it, but all of our major systems, our HVAC, our, um, it was a, uh, a precast curtain wall um, steel building and all of those major trades all design assist and they all built their own models foundations built everything so we could see where the duct banks were coming in and conflicting you know clashing with 
uh, our foundations and things like that. And it just made for, I mean, I remember traditionally reviewing um, above ceiling or below grade drawings and, you know, having to like, you know, go back and forth with them and things like that. And, you know, to be able to just sit and see everybody put all of their stuff in and spin the model around and say, oh, crap, I got to drop that footing. You know, something like that, you know, it just makes it so much easier. It's amazing. I mean, you have the information. You're sitting in a room and it's like there. So this thing's hitting this thing. So yeah. this this one, you know, trade A is hitting trade B's thing. Someone's, we can sit here and we can have a reasonable discussion about, you know, what do we do? either this beam's going to move up or that duct is going to dip down. Um, or Mr. Architect, can you drop the ceiling? Yeah, or <laughs> exactly. Or it's... <laughs> Or there's no room for any of it, and right, architect, you're going to lose six inches off your ceiling. But yeah. that, like, you can, when it's in front of you, you can have, like, I, I think it just, it, the collaboration is, is just, it's so much better. People are invested in the process and the project. It just, it's, and it's, it's sort of more enjoyable, which is something we never really talk about. That like, designing buildings and navigating this sort of rich 3d environments is just is more fun than right uh you know drawing sort of 2d representations of it It, it's just uh, oh yeah i mean it's just it's fun how many how many times does a client ask you you know it's just like well what is it going to look like you know i mean you know what is this space going to feel like and and how many times do they get confused when you're looking at a 2d printed view of it and they're just like "I, i i don't understand i mean what do you mean? You know, and then you have to say, okay, well, picture this space here, and you're like, you know, pointing at, you know, like it stops there, it stops there, kind of thing. But if you put, going back to like, you know, VR, I mean, being able to immerse them into this space, and they're like, oh, okay. And again, it it enforces that honesty, right? Because it's not exactly it's not the wide angle lens with the lens flares yep. and the yep. the soft glow on the highlights yep. and all that stuff. It's this is what it is. I mean, it, right. this, and you can look anywhere you want. And, and that also kind of, in, again, just reinforces it, that there is an inherent honesty to this process, yeah. which is a good thing because yeah. everybody gets exactly, you, you set the expectation. Yes. I, I'm really glad you went there with it. Cause I think, you know, honesty is a, is a incredibly, that's like, it's an important, I know it's simple, but it's a very important idea to, to pull out of this. Cause you know, I think one of the, the best compliments shop, receives is that you know when the built work is done it's you know well that looks exactly like the rendering and it's like yeah that that was it was her intent that, it's, it's a sort of testament to this process and the way we work in the sense that like we're not going for that necessarily but there is this kind of transparency or honesty through the the process you know internally too we're designing things we're not you know because partners are reviewing things in vr and it's all it's all we try to keep it digitally as real and as a simulation of what the 3D environment is. Because as you said before, the product is a three-dimensional, this is a three-dimensional uh, industry and environment that we're, that's, that's the goal. Um, so when you work this way, it's, I think that, you know, the, 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 um, uh, the byproduct of that is something that's very true to what the intent was. And that, I mean, that it's an honesty for sure, um, sort of honesty, integrity, of process, and uh, and and coordination and collaboration. Everyone sees the same thing, and there's no major aha or surprise. I mean, it, it's well. Think about how transparent you can be just to the client themselves. I mean, 
you know, because we frame views for them, you know, of like specifically what we want them to see. Yep. And, you know, in this kind of 3D environment where we let them see everything, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly, you're, you're able to like let them know, you know, where some of the challenges are and, and things like that. You know what I mean? It, it does offer them that, that truth and that honesty. And I mean, hell, to be quite honest with you, yeah. a lot of times we're trying to pull the wool over their eyes just to, you know, get them to, you know, buy off in the next scheme so we can move on to the other one. And in this particular case, they get to see it all and they get to understand, like, the reality of things. Yep. It's like, the reason we can't do this that you keep asking me for is this. <laughs> you know, and they can see it. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, John, we want to be respectful of your time. So I think this sounds like a good place to wrap up. Thanks so much for coming on the show today and and for getting this all to work out. Fantastic. It was a great conversation. And you can follow Shop Architects online on social media, and you can find them on Instagram and Twitter with the same handle in both places. Very convenient. That would be Shop Architects, all one word, no spaces, S-H-O-P Architects. And we'll have links to everything that we talked about in this show, including all of the projects, that Boeing 777 PBS special, and uh, everything else at arcaspeakpodcast.com. Thanks for listening, everybody. And uh, we'll talk to you guys next time. Thank you, guys. Cheers. Thanks. Drop.